The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 13, Nuts to Death. Jack and Isabel had worried that Mara would find a way to control or influence Moot with her spells, to turn the stories in the direction that best suited her ends, whatever they were. That hadn't happened, at least not yet. However, unless it had been Lucas himself unawares, someone had been able to draw the image of the great red cat from Lucas's imagination and the specter of the Rusalka from his deepest fears, and that did have her written all over it. Both were fairly sure that Mara would have taken full credit for the terrifying illusion if she had pulled it off, but she hadn't. They were aware that the app monitored interactions in its public spaces in case called upon to give a description of surroundings or answer a procedural question. Moot reminded Isabel of a condescending oracle. Outwardly helpful, but pose a question in just the wrong way, and it was liable to say, Well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. You wouldn't recognize an auspicious destiny if it jumped up and kicked you right in the... Isabel shook her head. She was thinking like Jack. That gave her an idea. It looks like we got right into Jack's story. It's me next week, and if Mara can tell a story starring our pilot, I can tell you one about Jack. Before we go, would you like to know a little more about one interpretation of the golden lad, the radiant boy? The others concurred. Moot remained silent. Isabel was not reassured. Remembering a particularly dour cross-stitch whose wisdom glowered at visitors from above the mantel in her aunt's best parlor, something about the Almighty being present at every conversation. Her five-year-old self thought that unspeakably rude. Isabel was pretty certain Moot wasn't a deity, but it wasn't a friend, either. Well, there are tales of a radiant boy in the ghost lore of many cultures. In past centuries, when ghost stories were fashionable reading and conversational entertainment, you could say he got around more than Elvis. He is very beautiful. Ivan swishes his luxuriant locks like a model and strikes a fetching pose, Lucas wrote into the public dialogue. Laughter followed. Well, Goldilocks, I saved your life, or rather your death. So while you're at it, fetch me a drink, Jack quipped. Adlind looks sternly at her listeners and taps her foot. Yvonne mutters, uh-oh, you're on your own, my hero, and moves a little away from Adlind, Lucas rejoined. As I was saying, the radiant boy is luminous to behold, and he is generally considered to be a harbinger of death. Charming, but fitting, I suppose. Nice one, Mara, Jack conceded. 
Mara acknowledged the off-handed compliment. Most of the accounts I know are Scots, Irish, and from the north of England, Isabel continued, which makes sense given the way stories travel. One famous tale holds that he was seen by Robert Stuart, Viscount Castlereagh, while an impromptu guest at a great house in Ireland in the late 18th century, before his star had fully risen on the political stage. He rose to great heights in his diplomatic career, suffered a mental collapse, and killed himself. So the legend has it that those who see this figure rise to greatness and end in violent death. And on that spooky note, my friends, I will see you next week. Before anyone could say goodbye and sign off, Moot wrote, You all saw the radiant boy, except Ivan, who was him. Farewells were short and thoughtful. Do you think it's still safe to talk in the private channel? Lucas wrote a couple of days later when he caught up with Jack and Isabel. As safe as anywhere, even apps that a race can restore. There's always an undo, a back door, Jack said. The thing about the private channel is it isn't monitored like the public part of the environment is. The idea is to encourage private planning so the adventures are rich and compelling, despite being only text. I don't think Mara came up with the red cat or the rusalka, Isabel said. She's like my stepmom in as much as she's very proud of her perceived or real power. She would have been insufferable if she had accomplished something like that. I think I know who did it, Lucas offered. The silence spoke the answer they all feared. Me, Lucas finished, or the app through my fear and imagination. Does that mean our minds are being read? Isabel asked nervously. That would be both impossible and too easy, Jack countered. If you think about it, what's a story? In our case, a series of potentially fantastical but still logical connections designed to achieve a result, an emotional response. The story has to adhere to accepted narrative logic or we would reject it as nonsense. So what is a set of elements connected by rules that solve something consistently? Basically, it's a program, and this one is particularly attuned to be aware of stories and our reactions to them. Even if it didn't dredge the red cat up out of the archives at just the right moment, Lucas's imagination did. From that bit of information, as an example of something he was fascinated by but not quite afraid of, and taking into account what he said publicly about himself, not liking working on the cruise ships and wanting to be a pilot, it wouldn't be a stretch to figure out that maybe water wasn't his favorite thing. From there, changing the antagonist in the story into one connected with water that would be immediately culturally recognizable to him was simple and almost guaranteed a strong reaction. That it did, Lucas agreed, shivering as if he felt a damp hand on his shoulder. Don't worry, Lucas, I won't let anything happen to you, Isabel avowed. As for Jack, though, I make no such promises. The knave of hearts will ride again, my lady, Jack warned. Not next week, he won't, Isabel signed off with a blown kiss and a wink. The following week, Isabel had them sign on near the seashore. 
It may have been the same coastline that had formed part of the vanished Rusalka's domain. Now, they were greeted by a description of twilight, a gently lapping tide, and the sound of a vast, calm sea. A fire crackled cheerily, and Isabel invited her guests to toast marshmallows and help themselves to hot cocoa from a flask in a basket nearby. Well, this is lovely, Adelind, but your tale had better be good, or this will lull me to sleep, Jack teased. Suddenly, he saw his character walking carefully along the shore, looking for salvage. Jack lived with his old mother in a cottage near the sea, Isabel began. He helped his mother raise chickens and ducks and sell the eggs at market. He kept their little home in good repair and tended the garden. When his mother was younger, she took in sewing for the neighbors to help make ends meet, and from her, Jack learned to make and repair fishing nets and sails. In his spare time, he was a beachcomber like his father before him, looking for treasure washed up on the tide. He built a little shed on the side of the cottage in which he sorted and stored his bounty. He made good use of much of what he found, and he never threw anything away. Jack had always been a good son, but as she grew older, he grew very attentive to his old mother. In addition to the chores he did regularly, he always brought her a cup of tea in bed every morning, since he was the first one up. Sadly, there came one dark and misty morning when his mother said she couldn't take her tea by herself. Jack sat on the bed and gently propped her against him, holding the cup to her lips so that she could take a few small sips. Her head fell back. He adjusted her pillows and smoothed her hair away from her face. I won't be here forever, Jack, she said softly, but I've raised a fine lad, and you'll do very well for yourself in this world. Don't talk that way, mother, Jack soothed, as much as for himself as for her. You're just under the weather, and you'll soon be right again. Too weak and tired to protest, the old woman said she would sleep again, and Jack should get on with his day's work. Jack left the house to walk along the shore, tears filling his eyes. Off in the distance, he saw a raggedy old man in a torn black cloak walking towards him. As he came closer, Jack saw that the old man was tall and spindly, with a drawn, haggard face. He had deep, hollow eyes and a brand new scythe at his back. "'Do you ken the way to the widow McNair's?' the old man asked abruptly but not impolitely. Down the strand a ways, but you probably knew that. Aye, the old man smiled. It's her I'm bound to see. Not today, Jack countered, calmly rolling up his sleeves. And the mist that was in Jack's eyes turned red as he beat seven hells of death. Who, truth be told, wasn't much of a fighter, perhaps because in the end he always won. As a final insult to injury, Jack broke the side handle in two. He looked at death at his feet. He was moaning softly. What'll I do with you? He spied a nutshell along the shore, ready to go out on the tide. It was a large hazelnut, and it was empty. The kernel had been eaten away by a beastie with sharp teeth who had left one perfect tiny hole. Jack picked it up 
and began stuffing death into it, raggedy bit by raggedy bit. None too gently either. Indeed, death was fairly convinced by the end of it that the second stuffing he got was far worse than the first. Jack cursed and swore and sweated, but by and by he got death into the nutshell. He fashioned a plug with his penknife from a piece of driftwood and plugged up the hole. Then he threw the nut as far as he could out to sea. You'll not come for my old mother now, he called. He went home and was delighted to see his mother up and about. She had put up her hair and there was a rosy color to her cheeks and a sparkle in her eye. Oh, Jack, there you are. A while after you left, I started feeling so much better. I had the energy of a girl. He saw that her hands were covered in flour. I've made the dough for scones for your breakfast, and if you go and get a couple of eggs, I'll fry them up for you. Jack was overjoyed. He went out and collected four large brown eggs. He brought them to his mother, and she put a pat of butter in the pan over the fire and took up the eggs. The butter wouldn't melt, and she couldn't crack the eggs. Jack tried the eggs, but had no better luck. He went out and got two duck eggs instead, but these were just as hard to crack. Jack suggested she try boiling them, but the water wouldn't cook them. The scones were ready, but they wouldn't bake. She asked him to go get a few carrots and leeks from the garden for soup, but neither of them could peel and chop them. The knife blade turned aside as if the vegetables were made of stone. We have too many roosters, Jack, his mother announced, trying to overcome the panic in her voice. Go out and kill one and I'll pluck it and roast it up for you like a feast day. Jack was getting very hungry and he selected a likely looking cockerel, but he could neither cut its head off nor wring its neck. Jack's mother was truly worried by all these strange happenings. Go into the village, Jack, and ask around. See if others are having troubles like us and whether anyone knows what can be done about it. In the village, Jack found that everyone else had the same trouble. Nothing would cook. Nothing could be killed. They were all going to starve. When he got home, his mother wrung her hands. What could have happened? she wailed. I think I know, Jack said ruefully. When you were out of sorts this morning and sent me away, I went for a walk along the shore and I saw death coming for you. He asked the way to the widow McNair's and he faltered. And what, Jack, his mother asked, her eyes wide with dread. I beat him senseless, stuffed him into a nutshell and threw him out to sea. Owen snapped his side. I wasn't ready to lose you, mother. Jack, what have you done? Nothing lives unless things die. Now in saving me, you've made sure that every living thing suffers. What can I do? Well, first, my son, you use those hands of yours to mend and sharpen the scythe. Good as new, mind. Then you take yourself down to the shore and hope the nutshell comes in on the tide. Then you set death to rights and apologize. Jack did as he was told, and when he had repaired the scythe and gone down to the shore, sure enough, the sea yielded the nutshell with the plugged hole. Jack removed the stopper he'd made and pulled a tiny wisp of the raggedy black cloak. He pulled steadily until death stood cramped and rumpled before him. That wasn't very well done, and you know it, laddie, death said, flexing his long bony arms and legs painfully. Jack presented his apologies with the repaired scythe. 
Beth marveled. The fix was so fine he couldn't see the break. I should cut you down, Death said, or take your old mother before your very eyes. But I won't do either. Not today. Do you ken why? Jack was silent. For the sake of your mother, because despite your worst efforts here, Annie McNair raised you right. I'll give her a few good years yet, but I'll come for each of you in your turn. And with that, Death turned, walked a little way down the shore, and disappeared. Jack saw the nutshell on the ground. For some reason, it had a burnished glow. He put it in his pocket. When he went home, he found everything back to normal. His eggs and scones were ready, and his mother was still cooking. Mother, breakfast is done. Now soup and chicken for by? he asked, amazed at her energy. We'll invite the neighbors, Jack. The world turns as it should again. Annie McNair lived to see Jack married and teach her grandchildren to make little boats with tiny nets and sails to race in rock pools. Death came for her at a ripe old age, and as she predicted, Jack made his way in the world just fine. When at last he heard the silvery swish of the scythe coming for him, Jack didn't put up a fight, but he did disappear. His wife noticed that on the last day anyone saw him, a large golden-colored hollow hazelnut shell was missing from the box where he kept his most treasured things. Death came for him, but never found him, and to this day, Jack is still beachcombing for all I can. But that's his story in a nutshell. Isabel bowed and everyone laughed and clapped. She pressed the hotkey. The Decameron revealed five of diamonds. Adland tells Jack to look down and pick up the bright object at his feet. He will see that it is a large golden nutshell with a hole in one end. What's this for? Jack asked. Call it a souvenir, Isabel finished, or an escape clause for a fine storyteller who is just a little nuts. Isabel typed a command to tidy the space and put out the fire. She signed off with a flourish. Well, that's a hard act to follow, Lucas replied. Mara and Jack both said goodbye. Before leaving, Lucas asked for a description of his immediate surroundings. Moot said, about four paces to your left near a driftwood log, something protrudes slightly from the sand. You see a squared corner. Lucas held his breath. A box. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.